Hi guys and welcome to the Sig Take. So today's episode is very different from my last episode in the context of it is not centered around child actors. Please check out that episode. I really thought it was a very interesting episode that if you really like controversies and the deep inner workings of Hollywood and just old Hollywood type of scandals and stuff like that. It's a very good episode, so please go back and listen to it. But for episode three of this podcast, I am going to be talking about coming-of-age movies, and I'm going to be listing ten, which is my ten favorite coming-of-age movies. Now, coming-of-age movies, I think people perceive the wrong way. A lot of people, I think, think, oh, coming-of-age movies are teen movies, and most of the time they are, I would say, but I think coming-of-age sometimes, if done right, really can leave something with anyone, and not just a person who's a teen, but someone who lived through their teenage years, is about to live through their teenage years, is maybe even a grandma or grandpa. Like, yes, you look at it and you're like, oh, that is a child's perspective, But I look at it and a lot of times the people who write it are reflecting on their youth. And I think there's a lot of things you can learn from youth and also looking back on your youth. So that is why I think coming-of-age movies are amazing. Um, I love them. I have watched, I think, almost every coming-of-age movie that I can that pretty much I think anyone can think of for the most part. It is very surprising when I find one that I have not watched. But I'm always very happy about that. But anyway, so... First coming of age movie I'm going to talk about is The Breakfast Club. Now The Breakfast Club came out in 1985 and I think it was one of the first I would say coming of age movies that really I think meant something and really struck a chord in people's minds just about I think living your life in in high school honestly. I think up until the 80s, maybe even the 70s, there was really no films that I think really addressed what teens were going through mental health-wise, parents-wise, just pressures of just growing up in society during these times, then during a very difficult time where people are very insecure and adolescence is, I think, hard for everyone. I don't think there's a single person that ever wants to really return back to their teenage years. You could have had the best high school experience in the world. Doesn't matter because I truly think that no one reflects and thinks back and goes, wow, I really want to go back to being a zit-faced, insecure person. It's just not something I think people would want to go back to willingly. So The Breakfast Club... I think everyone knows the story about it. I would say there's a princess, there's a jock, there's the criminal or the delinquent person, the basket case, the nerd. All it's it's all just kind of centered around these stupid high school stereotypes and how all these people in these high school groups and stereotypical groups are put together one morning on a Saturday's detention and they learn about each other and I I have always this movie has always really stood out to me solely because I think every movie capitalizes on stereotypes especially coming of age movies like stereotypes is that i mean in high school movies like high school stereotypes oh the nerd the jock and this one really showed like 
past that, like the inner turmoils that these people go through and how the the princess really just hates having to fit in and and be a part of everything that her friends do. Um, the criminal wants more out of life and that he hates and resents his father for making him become this way and the abusive household he has. The jock feels the pressure of his family wanting, specifically his father, wanting him to be the best and the only re and to basically be this ideal jock who's so cool and wants to bully the kids at school and stuff like that. But deep down, he really is a good person and he's just falling into this role because that is what has been given to him. And the nerd, I mean, I think the nerd is probably the most interesting one. I mean, Anthony Michael Hall is one of my favorite actors from the 80s and I think he really captured the fact. Um, I know a lot of people, even from my high school experience, I think everyone has met someone who puts an insane amount of pressure on themselves because that is what they identify with. That is how they gain their confidence through school. And it can be very rough to not get the best grade in a class like he didn't get the best grade in a shop and that freaked him out because to not be the best at something that really gives you confidence and makes you feel less insecure is very I think it's very hard for people who are like that who are type a and who really in high school identify with school so that they can feel more confident in themselves here are some interesting facts we got 10 to go through, so I'm really going to try not to ramble through all of these movies, but I really wanted to address The Breakfast Club because it's my number one for a sole reason. Like, this is probably, out of all the 10 on the list, this is definitely, like, my number one movie. It's my, one of my top out of my like probably four favorite movies of all time but I've watched this movie 40 40 times like it's just a comfort movie I love it but anyway so some of these facts I didn't actually personally know so here's two facts about the breakfast club Molly Ringwald swears that she tried over and over to do the trick where Claire puts on lipstick from a tube that she tucked into her cleavage it's like a cool little thing she like knows how to do that she tells the whole gang about and despite stretching and practicing and like really trying it was kind of impossible for for molly to do this um so they literally threw camera angles and cutting and all this stuff um they managed to fix it but like she didn't actually do it she just put her face down and they just edited it that the lipstick got on her face per like on her lips perfectly that was not like a real thing unfortunately she really tried but it was a trick that just was not possible for her the other thing was, this is actually what she said about it, which I thought was very funny. She said, I really feel like I'm so disappointing to people because that scene really points to the power of the movie magic and editing. John Hughes actually was embarrassed to tell me about what was in the script. I had to keep saying, John, can we talk about the lipstick thing? Are there prosthetics involved? But all I really do is put my head down and then put my head up and then it's done. As I said before, that really is just movie magic. I mean, if you can't do it, edit it or get someone to come in and do it for you. That's basically how it works in Hollywood. The next movie that I put on my list is Edge of Seventeen, which came out in 2016, which is surprising me because I feel like it came out like two years ago. It just feels so recent to me. It's it's still very fresh in my mind. I've only been able to watch it three times. Not because it's just like I have to wait in in, in spurses because every single time I watch it, it makes me cry. I always say when you watch a movie and it makes you cry, there's something in it that like is very real to you. You feel like that person. And honestly, as you're 17, to really dive into its message, because 
I think when people watch it, they don't really know the message of the movie is that basically behind every bully or selfish person, which Nadine is, unfortunately, she's a selfish person, is someone who is deeply hurt. Now, Nadine feels stuck and alone because, to be honest, she only has one friend. Her dad died, who was probably the only person who seemed to love her and truly get her as a person. And he and her mother, unfortunately, is the complete opposite. Her mom is a selfish hot mess, and she can't see past her own problems. And that's literally who Nadine is as well. She mirrors her mother, and she hates her mother because her mother is her, unfortunately. And her brother is her father. It's very, like, interesting how people don't want to be, like, the parent that they most are. And they want to be, like, the parent who, they, who isn't like them. And I, I found this movie very interesting because I think a lot of times, like, I personally can take people for granted and be selfish. And I think um, there was a lot of times in high school when, uh, when I watched this movie. I was in high school. I was 15. I was in my freshman year. And I remember thinking to myself, like, not at the time. Like, I, at the time I cried and I didn't understand why. But the last couple times I've watched this movie, I've realized more and more, like, how much I related to that character in high school because I was an only child and I think I took a lot of things for granted and I was a little bit selfish. I would never say I was a bully like her in some aspects and like how she treats some people. Um, like she's a little bit manipulative, I will say to her best friend, but uh, I was definitely, I definitely took things for granted. And I think um, the best thing about a coming age movie is when it makes you realize things about your own life and it makes you learn from it cool fun fact about this movie is that Woody Harrelson who plays the teacher who Nadine is really close with improvised many of Mr. Runner's quips and jokes to the delight of the writer and director Kelly Freeman Craig and I thought that was really cool because if anyone has watched this movie Woody Harrelson is hilarious in it and also very mean but definitely hilarious a lot of times I would say what he says is what is what the audience is thinking the next movie on my list is Perks of Being a Wallflower. So this came out in 2012, and Stephen Chowalski can never say his name right. He was the author of the actual book. I tried to read the book. I did not enjoy the book. But the movie is literally one of my favorite movies of all time, to be honest. This movie really explores, I would say, a lot. <laughs> I think if anyone's seen this movie, it is a roller coaster. I don't know if I can properly explain it without giving everything away, but unfortunately it is a boy who comes into high school after being in a mental, I would say, psychiatric like situation where he's getting therapy and he was put in a facility to help him. We don't exactly know why, but he writes letters and kind of tells the story through that. And even in the movie, Logan Lerman voiceovering it as the narrator, and you don't really know exactly what's going on. You only really get it from his window, and unfortunately it is the window of someone who definitely went through some sort of trauma. So I think that's honestly what makes it so powerful, is that you're figuring out his situation that he's going through with him, which is um, how I took it. And I think a lot of people take it as a little bit more simplistic 
in a more simplistic approach, but honestly, I thought it was a lot deeper. And I, what I thought was really interesting was John Hughes actually originally bought the film rights instead of um, Stephen, who actually obviously made the book and then eventually made the movie. And what he did was he had the intention to write and direct it, and he intended the film to be a dark comedy with Shia LaBeouf set to play Charlie, Kristen Dunst to play Sam, and Patrick Fugit cast as Patrick. And Hughes' sudden death stalled the project, and he didn't actually complete the script before his passing. But this actually allowed the film to be revived as an independent movie instead, and so Stephen was able to not only write his own screenplay for his own book, but also direct it, which is very rare, honestly. A lot of uh, book writers do not get to direct and write their screenplay, so that's I thought that was really cool. And, and then another one is, in the director's commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray, he actually mentioned that Dead Poet Society and The Breakfast Club were two of his favorite films growing up, and that they influenced him. And I thought that was really cute that the actual one of the the Breakfast Club writer and director, like famous director, John Hughes, who would have, you know, taken his book and made it into a film, was actually one of his inspirations for the actual film itself, which is really cool. I think it really went full circle. Now, the next movie that I actually really enjoy, which is the fourth on my list. So Juno came out in 2006, and Juno kind of goes through the eyes of a girl who unfortunately becomes pregnant. She's a teenager in, in high school. It's very funny and it's very sarcastic and I think that makes people forget how scary teen pregnancy is. And they delve deep into a really tough subject that a lot of people look down on and treat pregnant people, especially ones who aren't like literally 17. Like it, it delves deep into this topic. And I thought they delivered it really well. I mean, it was one of the Oscar nominations of the year 2006. So that's really um, amazing for a coming-of-age mo coming movie to receive. Because I feel like the Oscars usually don't go for coming-of-age movies. But anyway, so some facts are Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day actually enjoyed Bren's line. Didn't have to drive out to East Jesus Nowhere so much that on Green Day's album 21st Century Breakdown, which I love that album, if anyone has listened to the album, please listen to it. He wrote a song called East Jesus Nowhere, which I did not know, so that, that I thought that was really cool. And then Juno was the Roman goddess of childbirth and marriage. And the, the name Juno also has other meanings for Canadians, which was actually where Juno was filmed. And a number of the cast and crew, such as Elliot Page, Michael Sarah, and Jason Reitman were born. And Juno was the code name of the beach where Canadian troops landed on D-Day. Approximately 1,000 Canadian soldiers were injured or killed on D-Day while capturing this beach. There's like a bunch of things related to the word Juno, but I just thought those were really cool little fun facts. So the next one on my list, number five, is 16 Candles. So 16 Candles came out in 1984, and this was right before Breakfast Club. So Molly Ringwald was kind of virtually, I would say, not as popular as she was after The Breakfast Club. A fact about 16 Candles 
is Anthony Michael Hall, who plays the nerdy boy in the movie, just like Breakfast Club. He really got pigeonholed in that role, and I feel bad for him, but him and Molly Ringwald initially disliked each other, so John Hughes, the director and writer, took them to a record store, and they bonded after they found out they liked the same music. And one of the groups they liked was the Rave Ups, which Molly ended up scribbling on Samantha's notebook. Samantha's the character in the film. To give you a little backstory behind this, the relationship with, between Anthony Michael Hall and Molly Ringwald's characters was not really supposed to be loving anyway. It was more supposed to be a friend vibe because Anthony Michael Hall's character is nerdy and he's supposed to be the pervy little kid who wants her freshman, who wants her the sophomore girl's underwear and the sophomore girl wants the senior named Jake Ryan who's supposed to be the stud like by the by like that language like oh he's like the jock he's like the one that everyone wants type of thing and I mean they they chose a really attractive actor so Molly Ringwald must have had a fun time doing that at like a very young age but anyway so Another fact is, in the book, You Could Ignore Me If You Tried, The Brat Pack, John Hughes, and Their Impact on the Generation by Susan Gora, Molly Ringwald said that she and Anthony Michael Hall were too young to entertainment themselves at bars or nightclubs. They often had to spend their Saturdays off from filming 16 Candles by crashing the bar and bat mitzvah receptions that were being held at the hotel in Skokie, Illinois, where the the cast was being housed. I thought this was really funny because I'm Jewish and it's like, I don't know, I thought it was very interesting that the only place that they could like party and like relax would be a bat mitzvah reception or like a party. And I mean, if you don't know anyone, I feel like a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah wouldn't be that fun. But I mean, I guess they had little, I guess they had fun with it. So the next movie I'm going to talk about, which kind of bleeds into the fact that The Perks of the Wallflower was actually inspired by this and The Breakfast Club. The one I'm going to talk about right now is The Dead Poet Society, which came out in 1989. Now, this film was actually one of Robin Williams' favorite roles is John Keating, who was a professor, um, teacher, teacher role in, uh, at a boarding school. And basically, he was kind of like a father figure to this group of like, you know, adolescent men, boys who were struggling with how to see the world. And honestly, I think we're just struggling with the pressures of fitting in, but also like becoming themselves and what they wanted to be. I mean, everyone knows being a high school, no matter like what age you are, 15 to 18, you're going through some sort of growth or some sort of change. And it's, sometimes it can be really hard, but Robin Williams really loved this role because he was able to be the type of teacher he in his school days, he like always wished he had. I thought a fun fact would be at the premiere, Kurtwood Smith, who played Mr. Perry, who was the father of Neil Perry, the one who is very much pressured by his father. He saw a At the premiere, he saw basically a a family where the father had the same type of domineering thing over, like, domineering energy over his son, very much like his own character in the film. And he remembered, he said that um, after the family left the premiere, he saw the father was crying. So I think it maybe struck a chord in that father's mind, which is very good because I, I hope 
people realize that putting unnecessary pressure on children is damaging, I would say. And this movie really showed it because, unfortunately, Neil Perry, who isn't the main character in the movie, but is pretty, I, 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 he's the one I will probably never forget. I mean, there's a lot of parts of, this, of movies that you forget, but he really struck out to, stuck out to me. He was very pressured and he ended up committing suicide. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie, but please watch the movie. Basically, the story behind that is John Keaton Keating, um, the teacher, really, he was looked at by Neil as someone to model for his rebellion against his father. And Neil decided that he wanted to become an actor and be a part of the school uh, Shakespeare production. So he lied to his father because he wanted to do what he loved, and his father, when he found out, was so mad at him and made him feel like such crap that he basically took his father's revolver and shot himself and because he felt his family could never support his dreams and honestly due to his death everything was set in motion so really propels everything forward in all neil pa neil perry is a tragic example of how king's love of freedom and art could go terribly wrong because Neil is arguably more rebellious than Keating himself because I don't think Keating had the type of father that Perry had. I mean, he wasn't, Keating wasn't at the point where he would have been willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of his beliefs. And unfortunately, Neil was. Okay, so the next movie is an amazing movie. Okay, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Now, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a classic. I think everyone knows Spicoli and just the iconicness of the movie, but Cameron Crowe, who actually wrote it and I believe directed it, he this was his third movie after Say Anything, and then he became famous, most known for Almost Famous, which isn't really one of my favorite movies. I've tried to watch it a couple of times, and I don't know, it's just, it doesn't really stand out to me that much. But I know it's a lot of people's favorites, so I thought to mention it because he really did create a lot of things. I mean, people really pinpoint John Hughes as being a propeller of, I would say, teen-slash-coming-of-age movies. But no one really talks about Cameron Crowe, I would say, and he did a lot for the genre. The actual... So in, in the Almost Famous movie, he documented a young journalist rock and roll exploits. Uh, a ball on tour and this really like that was also that was like semi-autobiographical and what crew did himself as he was being a, he used his music journalist roots basically for that movie for rolling stone and he took his his in the field work that he did for that movie and also did that for fast times at richmond high where he experienced with his own versions of many of the events by literally putting himself in high school he went to high school at 22 to get background information, real conversations, real scenarios of what people cared about. And he really, like, he found, like, a lot of findings. And the findings were put into a book and then a screenplay. And then he took those scenarios that he knew teens cared about and he made it into a film. And I would say it's very accurate, even the dialogue. So the next movie I'm going to talk about is Say Anything, which is by... Cameron Crowe. It was actually his first directional debut and it came out in 1989. 
The producer James L. Brooks actually said the movie was inspired when Brooks saw a man walking with his daughter and wondered what would happen if the father committed a crime, which plays into obviously the whole plot, which is a man, like a, a boy, falls in love with the valedictorian and wants to meet her and then kind of weasels his way into her heart. And unfortunately the father does not approve but then the father ends up not being a good man for reasons that you can find out when you watch the movie yourself which i hope you do and the whole movie is just amazing there's some really cool scenes i mean the most iconic scene of all time is when lloyd who is played by john cusack holds the boom box over his head and the actual song that was being played an interesting fact during the filming was turned the other way by fishbone instead of in your eyes which was put in during post-production i thought that was really cool anyway so the next movie i'm going to talk about is ferris bueller's day off which came out in 1985. now the actual day that apparently ferris bueller took off from school is june 5th 1985. Most of the license plates featured were abbreviations for the titles of John Hughes, other, like his other films, because this was also made by John Hughes. So for Katie's car, she is VCTN, which stood for National Lampoon's Vacation. Genie's was TBC, which was The Breakfast Club. Tom's was MMOM, which is Mr. Mom. Rooney's was 4FBDO, which is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And the only exception was Cameron's Ferrari, which had a license plate that read N-R-V-O-U-S, which was nervous, which I think really makes sense with Cameron's character because during the entire day, he is very nervous about the fact that Ferris is missing school and that he will get caught. I don't really think I need to explain Ferris Bueller's Day Off because I think in the title, it explains it. The last movie on my list, before I lose my breath, is Superbad. Now, Superbad came out in 2007, and it was based around Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who wrote the film when they were teenagers. It's no secret that Seth Rogen wrote Jonah Hill's character as an exaggerated version of his younger self, which you can really see because when Jonah Hill's acting, it just like very much reminded me of Seth Rogen. And then to have Seth Rogen in the movie, it was like a weird effect in my brain i think for everyone like it just was trippy in an interview with indy london rogan actually disclosed just how far back the story goes and that he said that evan goldberg and i started writing in high school when we were 14 years old and a lot of that stuff in the movie actually happened the relationship between us is totally fabricated for the movie we did split up eventually but we don't give a shit we don't love each other the whole fake id concept happened fogel is actually our our other best friend and all the names in the movies are people who went to high school with us. Um, Christopher Mintz Plasis, first scene ever in his entire acting career, he plays Fogel, who got the Hawaii fake. <laughs> Everyone knows that one. Is In his entire career, just saying, his first ever scene was his character's intro in home economics class. While discussing the scene in the DVD commentary, Mintz Classe, I literally am going to mispronounce his name, but Christopher admitted to being completely terrified filming his first professional movie ever. Because, however, Goldberg reassured Mintz, saying, I read so many non-actors, so many people who had never done anything professionally before, and none of them could hide their fear. That's why none of them got the job. And he was only 17. Now, those are the 10 movies that I picked out. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you watched some of these movies. They're really fun. They're 
a little funky some of them very much dated in some others but the 80s movies you're just you can tell they're from the 80s but it's a good time it's a fun little just take an hour or two out of your life and just relax and some of them will make you cry someone will make you laugh and it's just hopefully you'll learn something from at least one or two of them so anyway so this is the end of my episode i hope you will catch the next one bye